Hey, kia ora to you and a warm welcome to you. Lovely to have you along this morning. Uh, good to be together. Hey, one little housekeeping thing up on the screen. Uh, we do need a few, just got a couple of gaps in our roster that we need to fill up. Um, not too many. Um, obviously, it's an easy season to off-ramp at the moment. A little bit harder to on-ramp and that's across all spheres of life and we understand that. But we do need a couple of 11 a.m. Sunday managers. Sunday managers kind of, well, first to arrive, that's not true, not at 11 o'clock. I've been here since 7, but uh, they're coming at like 10.45. First to arrive for the 11, last to leave. Sunday managers are kind of our bird's eye view people on the, on the gathering. Um, if there's a fire, you get to wear an orange vest and save the day. Uh, there's a few little COVID protocols for signing in. There's making sure the exits are clear. There's making sure the cleaners covered is... Um, locked so that kids can't, I mean, we, we give them wine for communion, but we can't give them Detol for COVID. So, um, you know, that's that. So that, we need a couple of people just to help with that. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a mix between health and safety and just keeping the ship in order. That would be appreciated. Uh, a couple of people to help with pack down after the 11. That's awesome too, because sometimes I get chatting with people and then I look up and everyone's gone and there's a floor to be swept and leads to be rolled and those kinds of things. So there's, we've got a checklist of things that, for that. Uh, morning teas more there, nine o'clock people. And we do need a couple of creche helpers, not the parents, because we make the parents do creche anyway. So uh, we just, we're just we're just short of three or four par- uh, non-parents to just add a bit of bulk to that roster. Um, and of course, we're figuring out what we need at the 11 and what we don't, or the nine with various changes. But if you can help with any of that, just fill in your name, contact details on a slip of paper and put it in the giving box out in the foyer. That's my... Two nephews, I think, just gutted to be leaving. I wanted to hear my sermon again. Um, so, that's awesome. Alright, let's get into it. Uh, obviously, pastors everywhere, not just pastors, but school, ta- school teachers and uh, every industry, trying to figure out how to do things practically in the season that we find ourselves. So in a church context, a lot of focus in churches on uh, how do we meet, how many are we allowed, what, how many services do we have, do we run 15 25-person services, or do we run two 100-person services and a lot of online stuff? You know, trying to, just trying to navigate and figure out those kinds of um, complexities. I don't think that's the most pressing issue for pastors, trustees, leaders uh, in the season. I think more pressing is thinking about the maturity of Christians in this season. Uh, to remain faithful and faith-filled whether we can gather or not gather. Uh, church is one of those funny things where if we do it right for 10 years say and when I say do it right I mean if I do my job as a pastor right and we're the kind of congregation we need to be one another and community if you do it right after about 10 years you would think you grow to be healthy enough wise enough firm in the faith kind of solid in your foundations and understanding of you know the kingdom of God and the nature of the world that we live in that you kind of don't need church anymore you're like you kind of got to figure it out um, that's really kind of, we're, we're trying to do ourselves out of the business in one sense. And yet to be the church is to be this community of people that gathers not because like we need church as a utility, a, a tool in the toolbox, but because we are the church and so we gather together to be the church to one another, irrespective of whether we feel like we need it or don't need it. And so that creates a weird thing. Like if you do it really well, people need it less and less. Uh, and yet... The less you need it, the more, but that's who I'm called to be and who I'm discovering to be. So I need to kind of 
be all in it together. And so that, that calls for maturity in pastors to be trusting in a season where, you know, so often enough, I'm just talking to the phone. Uh, my two boys are on a screen over there with headphones in. With, that's an improvement because they were behind the phone fighting the very first, the very first live stream we ever did was me talking at my phone and just beyond the phone with my two boys going at each other. So that was like, that just felt like an amazing, I'm like, how oh, is it going to be a church? And on the other side of the, other side of the tripod, we got World War III happening. Um, so, you know, it calls for maturity of pastors to realize, um, you know, we, we, you know it's, it doesn't matter what spin you put on it. When you're used to like 240 people at the 9 o'clock gathering, and then you have 80, it doesn't quite feel the same as when you have 240. And yet we're in a different world, in a different context, and you don't want to read anything into that, because that would be crazy. So pastors need to be mature and, and, and trust. Congregations need to be mature in, in their faith, in their walking with Jesus, in their fidelity. And I think that's the, that's the, you know, that's the invitation of the moment, is not to be talking about how do we gather it's the invitation is to be talking about how do we maintain our fidelity to Christ in this season? How do we maintain faith? How do we live this Christian journey, whether we can gather or whether we can't gather uh, at the moment? Um, you know, we've got to rid ourselves of the idea of church as a uh, utility. Pastors need to work hard not to think that their job is to make church useful uh, or enjoyable. Uh, or pragmatic and helpful. Though you want church to be useful, enjoyable, pragmatic and helpful. Like you do want that. But that's not really at the heart of it. That, at the heart of it is a community of people that live life with one another. But of course you need congregations to be mature in the sense that, you know, not every sermon gets a scorecard and, you know, the, the quality of the morning tea isn't rated and that actually we're, we're buying into something bigger than the events that are happening. Uh, and then it allows us to be mature about what the church is and what the church isn't. Because church isn't somewhere I go, though I go to church. Church is someone who I am and who you are and who we are together as the body of Christ. And that's, uh, you know, key to focus on that. And so hopefully we can appreciate that then, you know, not having meetings or building momentum or increasing attendance doesn't change anything. The issue is gathered or not gathered, we can be the church. Which leaves me kind of circling all the way back round to what I've been talking about the last three weeks, really. Healthy habits and holy habits. Healthy habits and holy habits. Uh, as a pastor, my deep concern is not, can I get everyone in the building? My deep concern is, do people have healthy habits and holy habits that, that, that are going to hold them in good stead over the next 12 months, 24 months? Because uh, we're not going to have any more lockdowns, most likely. We'll see. Touch wood, fingers crossed, all those other things that you're not supposed to do. Uh, not likely, but what we are probably going to experience is people making a choice for their own lockdown or a choice for their own uh, degree of isolation. Now, I've already got people contacting me as a pastor saying, hey, look, um, I'm self-employed. If I have to stand down for 10 days, um, I'm not at work. Um, whereas for me, if I have to stand down for 10 days, instead of going to the office, I go to my kitchen table and carry on working. So, you know, everybody's circumstances are slightly different. And it's like, man, that makes sense to you know, not play that game or, or be risky about that. Or I'm going to be in lots of meetings all the time all over the place, it's no trouble. But we've got my cousin's wedding in Queenstown next week, so for the 10 days leading into that, we're just going to lay low because we don't want to risk getting shut down and missing out on our flights. It's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And we're just going to have lots of that all over the place. So in light of that, my, my, my heart is not how do we get people in the building, my heart is how do we make sure that we've got healthy habits and holy habits in place in our lives. And uh, so we're circling around that again. I think to the degree which church has been um, about 
healthy habits and holy habits is what we're trying to cultivate, the degree to which there'll be will be relaxed in this season. To the degree which you've built church around meetings and events and now you can't have meetings and events will be the degree to which there's stress and worry. So we want to focus on healthy habits, holy habits. Attentiveness to God in scripture and prayer in spiritual direction. I talked about that last Sunday. So I circled around. Uh, a pastor friend of mine, a um, little while ago, he sent me three new songs from Brooke Fraser. Uh, he knew that in my life I've been to... Def Leppard, Celine Dion, Robbie Williams, Guns N' Roses, Coldplay. He knew that my taste in music didn't necessarily land me discovering the new songs that we can sing on Sunday. So he's like, I'll help you out, I'll send you songs. So he's been, he's been sending me some recent songs by Brooke Fraser. And, uh, and after last Sunday, I thought, oh, I'm going to tune in to Brooke. Uh, Brooke, uh, Brooke Fraser is a New Zealand singer-songwriter. She's in Australia, part of the Hillsong worship team there. Married now, uh, Brooke Look at Wood, Look at Wood, I think, from memory. But uh, she's been writing songs that we've been singing in church for 10, 15 years. She's a, she's a theologian and a poet. She is, she's a real... She's a real um, there's a depth to her in terms of her understanding of the text and her understanding of the big story of the Bible. And she seek, I know she seeks in her songs to, to, capture what we, to capture good theology and bring that to life in, in lyric and melody kind of thing. So she's, we've been singing her songs at St. Luke's for years and she's... Got these three that, um, one released last year called Resurrender, and then two that have come out recently this year, one called Nineveh and one called A Thousand Hallelujahs. And we might end up singing some of them at church. We'll see how we go. The worship team will sort that out, not me. I can't sing. Um, they're all brilliant. So I found myself listening to these three songs over the course of the week. They're all brilliant. Um, you can listen to them anytime you want to listen to them. I'm not going to play them for you this morning. They're, they're, they're good songs. But there's a couple of lines in a couple of the songs, and there's some things she's doing with the lines that I want to pick up on and speak to in regards to our own spiritual journey. Uh, each of the songs are about fidelity to Christ and, and stand on their own merit. But there's a couple of lines in Nineveh and Resurrender. One of the lines in Nineveh, so she's written a song called Nineveh, Nineveh, and it's about Nineveh. And it's like, why are we singing about Nineveh? But then she has this line, Holy Spirit, help me where there is Nineveh in me. Holy Spirit, help me where there is Nineveh in me. And uh, that, you know, instantly that draws you in and you're like, oh yeah, where is Nineveh in me? Where is there parts of my life where I'm walking a road of destruction and rather, and there's calamity ahead, but I'm resisting God and I should just turn and embrace the compassionate love of God that forgives and restores and mends. So it says, help me where there's Nineveh in me. Uh, in the Resurrender song, she says, you're turning over tables, clearing out the temple, cleaning out the dirt. It's a reference not to like, thank the Lord he's doing something in the local church finally, flipping the tables over. It's a reference to... God at work in our hearts, in our lives. Turning over tables in my life. Cleaning out dirt in my life. The line is, um, help, us, help us God to please you where only you can see. You know, the secret place, the, the private place. That it would be honorable, that it would bring praise and glory to God. They're, they're, they're interesting lines. They're, they're cool lines. In both of these songs, what she's done is taken a biblical story or a biblical event, plucked, in one sense plucked the idea or stolen the idea of the story and then just totally reappropriated it to our own lives in a way that the original recipients of the story would never have thought about it or understood it or processed it or, or kind, of, kind of conceived of it, um, which is an interesting thing to do that, that I want to talk about. Uh, it's essentially an allegorical reading of the text. What she, she, she's reading one story and then just stealing from it to tell a whole different story or to reflect on a completely different story story 
Uh, little concern is given to the historical realities of the story. Uh, all the concern is on this moment and this situation in our lives today. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate way of reading the Bible. We just got to be mindful of what we're doing. And I want to encourage you in regards to this this morning. But I'm going to go all the way around the bush in order to do that so that you can be confident in what you're doing. Because uh, we've seen people do this and it not go so well. So we'll unpack that a little bit. Um, so there's four kind of ways for 2,000 years people have reading, reading the Bible. There's lots of ways. And you can put on different lenses. You can put on a lens of... I, I always remember the Bible is written essentially by the oppressed people on the underside of life. So if you're wanting to really understand what's happening, you've got to put on the lens of oppression to make sense. Uh, Rome didn't write the Bible. North America didn't author the Bible. It's the people on the underside, not the upside, that wrote the story. So that's an that's a interpretive key, and you can put those lenses on. Uh, you can, you, obviously, if you're a male, you'll read through the lenses of a male. If you're a female, you'll read through the lenses of that. And by paying careful attention to those lenses, you can notice things that are going on in the story and things that are, that are happening. Uh, you, could, you could position yourself as an atheist and read the story and think through what objections are coming up, what, what irks me. You know, there's different things you can do. But in terms of interpretive methodologies, there's kind of four that have been around for a couple of thousand years. Uh, they all end with CAL, which is called historical, tropological, anagogical, and allegorical, which is just flash words for other things, but they all rhyme, so that's awesome. Historical literal, or liter historical literary analysis. The Bible was written by certain people uh, at a certain time for certain reasons in order to make certain arguments and tell certain stories in order to achieve certain things. So we wanted to understand what the Bible's about. We kind of got to work hard to understand, well, what were they trying to say? And what did that mean? And how would they have heard that? And what were the implications of that? Um, people dedicate their lives. Obviously, I've done plenty of study. You know, there's others... You know, there's guys that have done PhDs on the Akkadian Empire, which is real helpful for about four verses in Leviticus. So, you know, good on them for, like, nailing that over four years, five years, a lifetime of ancient languages. Uh, but all of that comes together to give us a school of scholars or, or a group of scholars that helps us to understand what was going on 2,000 years ago and 4,000 years ago and 6,000 years ago. How would people have understood this? And that, that's an important way of interpreting and understanding the text. If we know what it meant to them, then we can figure out the significance to us. If we had no idea what it meant to them, it's harder to figure out what it might, how it might be significant to us. But if we know what it meant to them, we can figure out how it's significant to us. Tropological is scripture in order to shape ethics or moral behavior. And that's treating the text or every story that you come across as containing somewhere in it some sort of moral story. Some sort of ethical story that's going to somehow shape our ethics, shape our morals, shape the way that we live. Uh, you can do that with the story. Uh, you really got to push some stories to find a moral or an ethic in it. Uh, it can be very debatable, but that's, nevertheless, it's a faithful way of reading the text when you bear the other ways of reading the text in mind and discussing community and things like that. Anagogical is reading the text with a view towards heaven, to, with a view towards rising above um, the temporal. It's not a dismissive, it's not a the, it's not dismissing embodied earthy realities because we are embodied earthy people, but it's recognizing that sometimes we've got to lift our eyes heavenlyward. That God wants to develop the inner person for uh, enlightenment's used negatively in a new age kind of sense, but in one sense, it's this ongoing life of 
enlightenment, of learning, of coming awake, of seeing like you haven't seen. This journey towards being that which God's called us to be, that ultimately we will be in the age to come. Allegorical is symbolic representation of the life of Christ or our lives in each of the stories and trying to see things and learn lessons and unpack things. So let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 8, 23 to 27. This is the verse I did a couple of weeks ago. He got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. So we're trying to get our head around what that passages seeking to teach us or, or inform us on or, or guide us in our lives you've got to understand the context of the time so in the ancient near east in the first century world that the story is set uh, all of the elements have a god god of thunder and god of lightning and god of storm and god of seas and god of the harvest and god of autumn and god of winter and the god of wine and the god of beer and the god of uh, woman and the god of men and the god, the god of war and you know there's, there's a god for everything and if you're a sailor and you're going out on the seas into the great unknown and storms can come up, well, the reason storms come up is because obviously the gods are not happy and you want to keep the gods happy. And I get Neptune, I'll say Greek and it'll be Roman. If I say it's Roman, it'll turn out to be Greek. Uh, but, you know, Neptune's the famous god of the sea. And you, you want to offer the right sacrifices to Neptune. You want to, you, want to, you want to have said the right prayers so that the storm doesn't come and you'll have safe travels. Because if a storm comes, then obviously... Somebody's done something wrong, which we see in the story of Jonah. Storm comes and the sailors, who is it that has offended the gods? And the, these pagan sailors are deeply faithful to keeping the gods happy. Meanwhile, the, uh, not Christ follower, but the faithful Israelite who's meant to be following Yahweh is hiding down in the bottom of the boat, not doing what it is. Jonah's, a, if you understand the humor, there's a whole lot of funny things happening. What's funny is that the pagan sailors are wanting to be faithful to God, but the Israelite prophet is running away and is not faithful at all, and a storm's coming and eventually owns up and gets thrown overboard. Kind of. So we have this storm encounter on the lake. The disciples are afraid, and they, 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 wake, they wake Jesus up. And um, he rebukes him. He says, why are you little faith? What are you, what are you so scared of? In other words, I think he's saying there is like, my time's not yet come. You know, the story doesn't end with a shipwreck and me drowning. That's not how it goes. This is you have little faith. You know that we've set out, I've set my face towards Jerusalem, that we're heading towards Jerusalem. There's this event that's going to happen. But then he turns and he speaks to the wind and the waves and they are calmed. And the disciples say, basically, what the heck kind of dude is this? What manner of man is this that he speaks to the wind and the waves and calms them? Well, in a first century context, what has just happened is that the elements that are under the control of the gods have just been spoken to by this man and being calmed. This man must be one who is of the gods or one of the gods or the son of God as the story will begin to unfold. And so the story is about... Jesus putting his hand up and saying, you know, I was the word of God, the wisdom of God that was there in the beginning that orchestrated all of creation. I'm still sovereign over creation. It's not these gods of the sea. I am the one that is in charge of all of this. And they're blown away. What manner of man is this? This, this is the son of God. And that's really the point of the story. That's really the lesson of the story. To draw out of that, man, when we face storms in life, lucky Jesus will be in the boat with us and help us. 
That wasn't what those disciples, they didn't get home, you know, at the end of the day and be like, man, I, I learned some amazing things today. When there's storms in life, Jesus will be with us and speak to the storm and calm us. And it'll be, calm the storm and it'll be all great. That, that's not even on the radar for them. Their, their lesson is, this, this, the Jesus guy we're hanging out, he's the son of the gods. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the one. We're going to follow him and worship him. And yet, we've all grown up also going, yeah, but Jesus is with us in the storms and speaks to the storms and he's with us in the boat. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. That comes from these other ways of reading the text, which are legitimate and faithful and have their place, but we've got to know what we're doing. If you're looking to find a moral metaphor in this story, I think you're probably pushing a little bit. It's a little bit thin. Maybe there's some morals around um, if you find yourself in a storm, always trust Jesus. You could maybe say that, but it's a little bit thin, I think, to try and draw some sort of moral lesson out of the story. Uh, in terms of a heavenly vision, I think there's lessons in the story about looking beyond the wind and the waves. Not being afraid, realizing that there's a bigger story, there's a bigger thing happening. You've got to rise above the storms in life. I think there's some lessons in there that are worth learning and listening and pay attention greater dimensions of truth and life on offer than what we find if we're just continually caught up in the storm and the seas and the waves and trying to sort them out lift your eyes there's, there's other things going on allegorical is that idea of when you're in a storm christ is present to you in the storm when you're facing storms christ can speak to those storms and calm and that's the allegorical lesson that we can take from the story remember that jesus is always in the boat so there's dimensions to this passage that come alive when we look at it from different angles. And Scripture's been like that since the beginning. When we look at Scripture from different angles, we, there's this text that we believe is authored by people in a real-life situation, but inspired somehow by God. You, you twist the, like the crystal and the light and look at it from a different angle. You see something different. It's been done for 2,000 years, faithfully and fruitfully. Just got to be careful in how we do that all right so how what, what confidence do we have that we can do this or embrace scripture like this all right john 5 verse 16 to 19 because jesus was doing these things on the sabbath healing people setting people free casting out demons doing miracles um, telling the disciples to break corn and eat it essentially that's harvesting can't do that uh, the jewish leaders began to persecute him in his defense jesus said that my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They don't like that. Jesus gave them his answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. If you to unpack that story at the historical literary kind of level... What Jesus is teaching is that he comes as the representative of God, this full revelation of who God is. And the, the different things that Jesus does in his life reveal to us the nature, heart and work of God throughout all of history. Redeeming, restoring, loving, caring, tending, encouraging. The things that Jesus does are only the things that he sees the Father do. They're only the things that reflect the nature of God at work in the world, that God is always working in. So Jesus comes and all that Jesus is doing is a reflection of that which the Father does. doesn't do anything by himself. Jesus lives a life that reflects the loving action of God in the world, the ongoing loving action of God in the world. 
Revealed in scripture, revealed in relationship, discerned in the spirit. Jesus shows us the kinds of things that God's always been up to. And that God will always be up to. That the stories and the work of Christ in the Gospels are a reflection or a picture or a painting of all that God has been doing and all that God continues to do throughout history up to our life. Healing, restoring, mending, loving, embracing, including, lifting, encouraging, forgiving. Revealed in Christ. So you take an allegorical reading of the Gospel stories. I did a little bit cheeky in the MC story of the disciples I flipped it around and said about you know the kids song and the, the disciples said we don't like the kids song it's awful just make the kids go to their actions and amen and rah and Jesus said the kingdom of God is I, I took an allegorical read I took that right the, the, the disciples were not thinking about kids action songs on a Sunday morning in Taranga in 2021 but an allegorical reading, we, we, we pull out of that story and go, hey, maybe that story is telling us a story about today. What you can't do with that allegorical reading is turn it into a doctrine that says if the church is going to be the true church of Jesus, then always the second song on a Sunday needs to be a kid's action song. Always. And if it's not, then we are not faithful to Scripture. And if you're not getting into the actions on a Sunday morning enthusiastically like you should be, then you are the Antichrist. You can't do that. You, you can't draw that. That's not what's in there. That you've, gone, you've pushed that metaphor way too far. All you can say from that of an allegorical reading is, hey, there's a sense in which we do these things for the kids. And let's not put them aside. Let's just embrace them and do it for the sake of kids. Because God's always been about the kids. And Jesus said the kingdom of God is for these. End of story. Can't turn it into a doctrine. Can't put it on the website as bullet point number four that's irrevocable and don't ever do that. That's to push it too far. The problem with reading the text like this is not reading the text like this for our devotional life. The problem is when preachers take it and come up with sermons based out of a devotional reading. That's when we get into trouble. Uh, classic one for me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Thanks be to God who always leads us in his glorious triumph. Well, I've heard a few stories about thanks be to God who always leads us into triumph. I don't think that's what the passage is about. Leads us in his glorious triumph. What's a glorious triumph? A triumph is a procession of an emperor returning to Rome having conquered the enemy. It's the, it's the emperor or the general's glorious triumph. They come back into the city in a chariot. With all of the conquest of the wars that they've been away waging. They've got gold, they've got jewels, they've, you know, have you seen anything in that context? They're probably elephants and peacocks and jaguars on chains and things like that. And there's the conquered enemy out the front of the procession, naked, dirty, because they've been abused and mistreated, because that's the nature of war in that context. They stink because they haven't been washed. Well, the passage carries on in Corinthians talks about these Christian people being an offence, a stench in the nostrils of many. Why? Because the way that they live their life in fidelity and devotion to God is a critique of the empire. It's an stench and it's an offence to many. But it's a pleasing aroma to God. So thanks be to God who always leads us in his glorious triumph. Oh, awesome. Where are we in the glorious triumph? We are slaves right out the front. The first to arrive. No longer I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. 
having laid down my life, taken up my cross, a slave out the front. Ah, that's not quite the glorious kind of triumph I was hoping for. No, no, it's more like Paul who's shipwrecked and beaten and abused and washed up countless times, 40 lashes with the whip however many times. Paul's like, thanks be to God who leads us in glorious triumph. It's not looking like a big house and more cars. It's like, Paul's like, no, it's not at all. In fact, it's a stench to the contemporary society, but a pleasing aroma to God. So an allegorical reading of that text, though, might be you're in a bit of a storm. You're in a bit of a dry place. You're in a bit of darkness, and you're reading your devotional reading. It says, thanks be to God who leads us into, in his glorious triumph. And you feel like the Holy Spirit speaks to you in that moment and says, I'm going to push on because I think we can get through this. I think there's a victory to be had at the end of this. I think I can get through this. And I go, yes, that is a faithful reading of the text as, as the Spirit of God brings something alive to you in that moment. No, don't turn that into a sermon on Sunday morning about always we're going to be victorious because that's not what it is about. So we've all seen it kind of skew whiffed, but nevertheless it's healthy and helpful when we are doing it properly. And I want to encourage you in regards to this in terms of healthy habits, holy habits and reading scripture and listening to the voice of God in your story, in your moment, in your situation. Noah's Ark. Read the story of Noah's Ark. Maybe something to reflect on in that story is, where's God calling me to build something in my life, to establish something in my life in this season that will hold me in good stead in the season to come? That's a good... You're taking one story, reflecting on your own story, reading something out of that story for your story that's not really anything to do with that story, and yet that's a faithful reading of the text. Gideon, God calls Gideon. From the, he's the least, of, the, the, the least tribe, the least of his family, the, least of, the family's the least in the tribe, and he's the least of the family, and gets called to be a leader, to take the charge, to do something. That's a complicated story because it's a sword and baton and killing, and that's all weird and hard to get your head around. But you can take from that story. I feel like in this moment God's saying that even though I discount myself, even though I consider myself to be the last and the least, that somehow there's some sort of call some sort of purpose in my workplace or in my school or in the situation where I feel like God's calling me to, to, to stand up and to lead in some way. You can take that. That's a faithful reading of the text. Of that. That's what God's bringing to life for you in that moment. David puts on Saul's armor. Doesn't fit him. It's not made for him. He's a shepherd. He's grown up in the wilderness. He's used to a sling. His face bare and lying with a sling. He's not a man of armor and swords, not at that stage. He realizes he's trying to do something and something that doesn't fit, something that isn't him. So he lays that aside, trusts God, takes his sling and ends up being victorious. How often are we trying to be someone that we're not, hoping for the win, and really what we need to do is just lay the something that we're not aside and put on that which is us, that which is comfortable to us, that which is how God's created us to be and discover that we can trust in God and run that part. You've got to appreciate none of the ancient Jewish rabbis are reading that story about um, you know, not being someone else. They're reading about like the armor and David and weapons and wars. Like, and yet it's a faithful reading of the text. Even more than that though, if we jump into the New Testament stories, and this is where I want to encourage you in regards to your own devotional life and reading in this season, read the, read the gospel stories. Knowing that whatever gospel story you're 
reading. Whatever you're reading, Jesus is doing. It's a reflection of what God's always been doing and continues to do. There's a healing of a man born blind. What do, what do we take from that? We take from that that it's always been the will and the work of God to bring clarity, to bring insight, to help us to see properly. And sometimes in some places in the world, there's these literal miracles where people will receive sight. Other times it's these people that have uh, invested years of study to understand how God's put us together so that they can cure cataracts and give glasses and do eye operations and things. And many times it's metaphorically speaking in the sense that we've become blinded and need to see with clarity. So you read the gospel and you read of the story of Jesus healing the blind person and you're like, man, God wants to help me to see with clarity. Or you read of Jesus turning water into wine. You go, well, God's always been taking what appears ordinary and doing something extraordinary with it. Maybe in this moment, in this season, in this situation, God wants to do something extraordinary with what looks very ordinary in my world, in my context, in my moment. There's a man, he's, uh, Jesus is writing in the sand, and he looks up at the woman and he says, uh, he says, where have your condemners gone? Where have your accusers gone? says they're all gone and he says well neither do I condemn you go and sin no more or what God's always been looking to forgive and restore and heal and maybe that's what you need to grasp and realize and see in this moment Jesus saying to you well I don't condemn you go and sin no more walking on the water Jesus always comes walking on the water storms the trials the tribulations we find ourselves in where well, you can expect Jesus to show up in unexpected ways. That's a faithful reading of the text. Jesus turns up in unexpected ways. Turns up at Lazarus' tomb. He weeps and he cries. Well, you go, what does Jesus do? Jesus mourns with those who mourn. He laughs with those who laugh. He also turns up late. We can probably expect... It feels like Jesus is still turning up late. After all these 2,000 years, he still didn't get a watch. Well, you, yep. You can probably trust Jesus that he'll turn up late in your life, in your situation, in your circumstance. Sitting and teaching wisdom, Jesus does this, it epitomizes this in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet for 2,000 years, Jesus has still been showing up in people's lives and whispering words of wisdom and encouragement that would help them to see with clarity. You've heard it said, but I say unto you in this moment. Jesus lays down his life on the cross. The cross was a once and for all situation. And yet every time we fall short or miss the mark or blow it, Jesus lays down his life again for us, in a sense goes to the cross and freely gives his life that we would have grace and mercy and forgiveness again and again. He says, go into all the world. What does Jesus still say today? Go into all the world. Go to your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. The one thing that I don't think we get is the same thing that Jesus said back in the day as well. The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Which swings us right back around to our Nineveh story. I'll lay down my life, I'll go into the tomb, I'll rise from the dead. And yet we're still like, if I get it, we're still Gideon. If I get the sheepskin rug from out of the lounge and put it out on the backyard, if in the morning the sheepskin rug's wet but the grass is dry, then Jesus, I'll know that you're real, kind of thing. I think still Jesus, uh, you know the whole signs thing? Still not doing signs. Still not, still not proving little things, still not doing little things that just make you think it's all going to be alright. Still calling us to faith and trust and fidelity. And yet the Spirit of God whispering throughout that. The question for you in this moment and 
This is where I think, as, past, as a pastor, I want to encourage you to maturity. Is you've got to work out which is the story for you in the moment. I could do the, I could do the, I don't know, the healing of the blind person story. And the people that are feeling like they lack vision but are needing vision will go, well, that was the greatest sermon I've ever heard. But the other people who are just like, will Christ weep with me when I'm weeping? It's like, oh, I don't really feel like that was for me this morning. Yeah, well, that's always the case. But if we all have got our own world, our own life, our own devotional space where we're traveling through the Gospels, what we discover is the story for the moment and the season that is the story for us. And it won't be the same for every single one of us. And I just want to provoke you and encourage you and stir you to attentiveness to God and prayer and Scripture, spiritual direction. I want to give you permission to read the Bible not as a scholar, but as someone that's just open to God speaking to you and to know that that's legitimate. You don't take what you felt like God was saying to you and turn it into a everyone has to do the action song next Sunday sermon. That's not where we're going. But that's easily managed. You just talk to a friend. So I feel like God's saying this to me in the story. I feel like this is what it, the voice of the Holy Spirit's whispering. And probably 99 out of 100 times your friend will be able to go, that sounds crazy or that, that seems to make sense to me kind of thing. You can do that confidently. So St. Luke's might gather, and that would be awesome. But St. Luke's might be scattered, and might be scattered increasingly. Not because we have to be, but because it actually is, makes sense. And, or because we have to like, have days down. I mean, it's very likelihood that there'll come some, one Sunday, we're on Saturday night, I'm all ready to go. And then Lisa comes home and says, oh, I've actually just tested positive. It's like, all right, I'll get on the internet and let the world know church is cancelled. Um, you know, th this is just going to happen in life. Uh, if you don't know, my wife works at the hospital, so she's high risk. Um, so I'm trying to get her to live in a tent and not come near me, but it's not in my nature to do that, and I don't want to do that. So I'm not trying to do that at all. All I'm saying is, I'm forever trying to get it out of the tent, back into it. No, no. Um, all I'm saying is, <clears throat> increasingly, scattered is going to be normal and it's going to be a reality. Well, mature pastors will realize, hey, the church is scattered at the moment. So be it. It's fine. Mature Christians will realize, hey, I've got to activate my own devotional life and hear from God myself, as we always should have been anyway. And we'll discover that we stand in good stead. All right, let's close with communion. But we've already had that, so let's close in prayer this morning. Let's stand together and I'll close in prayer.